In a world where ostensible equality before the law leads to perversely unequal outcomes before the law, one bear and one lady are recalibrating the scales of justice and your heart. It's knackers and the vag. One human lady worker and one small bear are back, comrade, back to the very, very dirty work of describing the filth of the political present. So welcome to Knackers, Knackers, Knackers and the Vag, 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 the breakfast show that you don't particularly want but long for nonetheless. In this, the darkest era of despair, the dawn of revolutionary optimism that rises in the shadow of crumbling empire or something. It's also a thing, um, sorry, boring bit of capitalist debauched business, speaking of dirty work, 275 worker comrades um, give part of their wages to fund. So if you'd like to uh, fund cranky fits of recorded rage about history, rage and reason, well, we've, we've got the reason here, you'll hear them in a bit, go to uh, patreon.com. Helen Razor, the name by which I sometimes go. That's Razor with an E. Um, it's a place you can also find writing, including my self-help guide to getting over your white shame and a lovely etiquette guide on how to smash the fascists. Anyway, you know it's the time between time, comrades, and we are the filling in history's great sandwich. And today our mayonnaise is Julian effing Burnside, QC and a range of other letters. How are you, doll? I'm good. And I have to say, I don't accept all of your rant. Of course you don't. You're, no. a, you're an argumentative bastard, which is why well, we kind of get on. Apart from that, yeah. All right. Well, which part don't you accept? Well, I actually am not opposed to capitalism. I think capitalism yeah, I has done quite a lot. And, um, you know, if we all work really hard, I think we're probably entitled to reap the benefits of hard work. Now, um, although you are plainly a traitor to the many, I'm going to give you the ruling class bear <laughs> nonetheless. Um, just a word about capitalism. This is a, a little teddy bear that uh, you, you know I give because you know that I talk perhaps as much as you, maybe even more, um, and I'm a member of a more vulgar class, so you know I'm I'm uncivil. So you throw the bear at me if I if I talk too much. But just to think about that idea about capitalism and the good that it's done, because you did bring it up. Do you want to talk about? Actually, that? you raised it. You raised it. Well, I I, didn't... I I was merely defending it against your attack. <laughs> it wasn't an attack. In my view, it was a statement of fact. But if we think about this bear, and we think about you know, the bear is a commodity, is something that I purchased. When we think about the human labour that went into that bear, right, into that commodity, um, which has, you know, a use value um, between us because you're going to throw it at me when I say things about capitalism <laughs> for too long. Um, but when we think that the exchange value, like the way that that bear makes people rich but immiserates the people who made it, do you think that there is maybe a fundamental ethical flaw of capitalism? That's a really interesting point. 
And it made me think immediately of the shopping bags which are being handed out by the supporters of the Liberal candidate in this seat. Yeah. Shopping bags, you know, the standard shopping bags. Um, Reusable. Well, I suppose you could use them more than once, yes. Yeah. But they're, they're endorsed with the candidate's name. Mm. and That uh, would be, I believe, the current treasurer of the sham of parliament of the territory we call Australia. That one. His name is, it escapes in any, me. In any, don't worry about that. My point is this. I thought, <laughs> I thought the idea of handing out bags, even though they're not ideally shaped for shopping bags, I thought it was an interesting idea and I thought maybe we should do the same thing. But what I discovered on researching it is that if we got shopping bags made without using sweated labour or that were made in Australia, they were going to cost $10 a piece. Now, I don't think that that candidate is handing out bags that were $10 a piece, which suggests that they might have been made with sweated labour, which tends to lend a bit of support to your um, a bit of support. observations about it's capitalism. Ha- it, it's Well, you know, honestly, it's not my observation about capitalism. It's the observation that begins a volume in three works that was supposed to be seven uh, first published in 1867, the idea of the commodity and what the commodity does begins a little series you might have heard of called Capital by Karl Marx. Mm. <laughs> and by the way, 1867 is interesting because um, one of the things which, as you're aware, is going to be very important at the forthcoming election is climate change. Climate change is the phenomenon which is produced by carbon-based molecules in the atmosphere trapping which infrared heat. Which has been belched out by Western industry. Uh, um, amongst other things. Well, yes. mostly. Yes, 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 yes. Um, but the interesting thing is that the phenomenon of carbon-based molecules in the atmosphere trapping infrared heat was first discovered before Karl Marx wrote Das Kapital. It was discovered in 1856 by a scientist called Tyndall. Yeah, it's, I mean... We it, have known for over 160 it, years what we're doing. It's an extraordinary period, the 19th century, because this is the time where the great machine of the steam train surges forth mm. and the workers in the factories of the West lived and sweated in uh, appalling conditions to build the abundance that some people in the world now enjoy. So there's so much, you, you might want to call it, you know, like uh, the, the dead labour of history that informs the present. But what we did was we outsourced a great deal of that terrible, dirty work to the global south. And it's my view that what you might have once called the colonial project is still happening. But look, before we talk about uh, capitalism and have our inevitable argument, and of course, you know, you, you can't buy, you, what you just described with the, the shopping bag is a fact of life. Like I am wearing a T-shirt, which is quite a nice T-shirt. It's quite well made. But if I were to trace the supply chain uh, of this particular T-shirt, I would probably find out that it was made by a woman worker in Bangladesh. Who knows where the cotton came from? I, I don't know. I don't know by what means it was extracted. Probably in the northern part of Australia where they can scarcely 
afford the loss of water associated with growing cotton. But this is the game that a certain kind of professor will will play with their students. Say, what did you have for breakfast? Oh, I had, you know, muesli and some eggs. Where did they come from? The cafe or the supermarket? No, where did they come, uh, you know, before that? And the joke sort of goes that eventually all the students stop having breakfast because they realise that nothing that they consume has not been exploitative. So the idea that you can consume, you know, pure goods is one that will only work if you have loads and loads of money. And how did you get the loads and loads of money, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it's my view um, for that and other reasons that the value that we build or the wealth that we build into the world relies on an act of exploitation and it relies on an act of estrangement. I'm certain that the lady who spends goodness knows how many hours making this T-shirt, which is the only one I can afford, would rather not be estranged from life in that way. But So a lot happens when you start from the commodity and you think backwards. It's not the only way to think about it. But is there, I ask you, Julian Burnside, Top Silk, QC, traitor to the ruling class, such a traitor that the Murdoch filth press in Australia points out what it sees as your every infraction. I mean, you can't, you know, break ethical wind without them reporting on it in some way or another. But can you see a way beyond that? Can you see a way where people aren't chained to the same labour for so many hours a day and we can build the world we want? Um, I think the short answer is yes. Uh, I mean, at least in Australia, one of the interesting things that I uh, discovered when I decided to put my hand up and stand for the Greens is that the Greens have got a full suite of policies. I mean, I think I had always thought of the Greens as just an environmentalist party that was wrong. Turns out the Greens have got policies covering the whole range. I read those policies before putting my hand up and analysed all of them, and they all come down to a concern about human rights and community values. Now, that's pretty good when you think about it. Oh, you know, best of a bad lot, let's say. Uh, Yeah, your point is? (laughs) Well, you know, I don't, I mean, I'm more interested in talking to you about the present time, not talking so much about the possibility of a parliamentary party truly transforming things. I'm more interested... But that's because you don't think parliament is worthwhile. Well... You, you, I mean, my impression is that you would like to tear down the entire structure. Yeah, no, that's, whereas, that's, that, that, that's not an impression. It's something I'm, that I declare okay. openly. And I, I'm more interested in seeing if I can make the present structure work properly, properly according to its design. Mm. I mean, our structure mm. is designed to give the people of the country... Uh, a voice in the way the country is run. Do you really and think so? I think that that's what representative democracy is supposed to be about. That is what it's supposed to supposed be about. Supposed to be exactly. But it is a committee that has really done very little but organise the affairs of people, those few, with a lot of property. I mean, you 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 could say that the idea of Western democracy was actually founded 
to advance just that. The the I mean, you're a, a, a gentleman of the law and you have in the past. The remarkable thing, let me just say this to you here on Knackers in the Vag, if you're, the remarkable thing that you may know if you live in the Territory, uh, this continent, Australia, as it's called on the map, if you're over 40, you'll know Burnside as the bloke who was, you know, the toff who surprised you, maybe, in 1998 uh, by joining the struggle for the Maritime Union, the MUA, right? And then if you're under 40, you may know him as the tireless advocate for the rights of refugees, specifically those detained in the death camps. You don't mind that word, do you? I, I don't think they're accurate. It's not accurate to call them the death camps. All right, the, the relatively and ineffective it, death camps. It, it offends a lot of Jewish people to call them death camps because it's not that the detention centres in Manus and Nauru were not and are not equivalent to the concentration camps in Germany and no, Eastern it's Europe. No, a, it's, a, it's a slower kind of death and it's a different kind and a less effective and efficient kind of denial of mm. life. All right, oh, so, don't, don't, don't mistake me. Yeah. For a, I'm not for a minute suggesting that there is anything good about what we're doing to refugees, but it's not the same as yeah. the concentration camps. Nothing is the same as Shoah. No. Uh, but, all right, let's call them prison then, uh, mm. a prison that drives people to suicide and does mm. accidental murder whoopsies every now and then. Mm. Um, so you, you'll know, uh, Julian, from those events and you'll perhaps, um, you know, also have gained an impression of him even now as a kind of bloke who, you know, and he's written about this himself, so it's not uh, in any way vulgar for me to tell you that he identifies as, uh, you know, the son of great privilege. You know, the emotional life of such a son was not necessarily all roses. But at a certain point, he began to think the promises that the men, usually men of my class, deliver to the people are not being made good on. There is this perpetual promise of equality and a good life, which is perpetually denied. Now, one of the reasons I want to talk to him is not so much about his campaign, but yeah, hey, if you do live in Kuyong, uh, as long as he's not a Victorian socialist running, I don't know yet, like, vote for him, absolutely. It would be a wonderful tumble. Um, it would be an interesting moment. But I want to talk about how you got there and how you still are asking these ruling class ideas, these ideas imposed by law, by the colony, um, by what I consider to be, you know, a sham of representative democracy. I mean, particularly in the Senate. What, did somebody write down the secret instructions about how to get into the Senate on the back of a sheep, you know, that only kind of like Fraser Anning gets to read? You, I mean, you know that there's some strange people who end up in Parliament who in no way represent the interests of, of the people, right? Yeah, sure. But the Senate is supposed to be a house that represents the states. You know, that, that's, that's the whole point. And you get the same thing in America. And I know it looks odd, and I know that Paul Keating referred to the Senate as unrepresentative swill because 
they're not representative of the population at large. That is true. They're there to represent the states. Yeah, they're representative of people who have generations of, um, you know, property behind them. Uh, well, that's a very different argument. No, it's not. Um, if you Look, consider if, that, that, so why was the nation state? Why was the nation state founded? Um, I, go, go back to your piece of Westphalia. Why was the <laughs> nation state founded? It was founded to protect the entitlement to property of a few. Things have changed fairly significantly since then. I mean, in let's face it, in nineteenth-century England, women were not allowed to vote, and um, women were sort of regarded. And let's not forget, they were regarded as men's property. But things have developed. And let's not a forget bit. that it was not just women who were not permitted to vote in the UK. It was you know, it was also dirty working class sure. men. Okay, okay, things have developed. Now the idea. How have they developed? Well. Um, now, everyone who is older than 18 is entitled to vote in Australia. And, and that's important. Vote for... Now, it not, it's not a perfect system. I agree, agree with that. It's not a perfect system. Um, you're going you're gonna to go the Winston Churchill on me any minute, aren't no, you? No, I'm not, actually. <laughs> and tell me. You know <laughs> no, the, no, you no. Know the yeah, famous I do. quote, yes, I do. don't you? Yeah. It's, um, you know, but it's... Um, better it's than a, the rest. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a terrible, repugnant yeah. system, but, um, you know, it's... Um, it, but it, you, except for all the, the others. Al- except for all the others, yeah. yeah. Um, no, I wasn't going to do that. But if if we think these days that it's important that people who vote should effectively have people representing their views in the parliament, then I think it's really, really important for the representatives to listen to the people who elect them. My concern, one of my concerns about the system as it presently operates is that the major parties seem to get a great deal of money from very big donors and they listen to the donors rather than to the electors. Yeah, the only way the Labor Party in particular listens is strategically. You can hear, and you could hear it with the libs too, uh, in the recent uh, budget that was handed down in Australia. You can hear that they're only listening to focus group research and, you know, you hear a whole lot of policies and none of them cohere into a whole. You know, it's, well, a little bit about aged care. I can't remember the figure that has been stripped from aged care in recent years by Liberals, but, you know, um, perhaps one day I'll write you some show notes and help you out with that particular atrocity. But I guess, I don't know, I'm, I'm slowing down into a state of despair in thinking there really is, you know, when you when you think about the number one concern of being human, right? It's our survival. Yeah, survival on the planet. Let's not make the planet no, unlivable. Let's just our, talk individu- about- our individual survival, yes, that is true. On the other hand, I'm inspired by the fact that a lot of people, especially a lot of people who are old, plant trees that they never expect to see grow to maturity. And why do they do that? They do that for the benefit of the next generation. And I think that's a great thing. Yeah, that's a nice It's kind a of, really interesting idea. And Yeah, it's a nice human story. You know, it's lovely. It's a my little, land- little more than that. No, well, look, for example, my landlady, right, because I'm one of a sort of a 
class and a generation of people who, you know, just has no hope of getting, you know, an asset at all. The uh, economy such as it has been directed, uh, financialized and globalized these past 40 years, uh, there is, as I'm sure you'd know, a mass of us who, you know, are just thinking, wow, you know, there was a time where people got houses and there was a time where people had stable jobs. So yes, it's very nice when somebody plants a tree, but, you know, I love to garden and I would love to plant trees. And I have planted trees in this part of my garden that I know I'll never see. But one day, and I don't know why, it really upset me, you know, in a really numb gut way that I couldn't understand, you know, when something troubles you and you can't intellectualize it, which is your habit, you know, you feel, um, you know, the activism of the gut and it might take you a while before you understand it in your brain. And I think that this is kind of like the internal revolution that we all have, you know, that, that changes our thinking. If we listen to it, we take that sentiment and we turn it into thinking, which is one of the reasons I don't mind your burden side. I don't mind you a bit. My landlady puts an olive tree in the back of the garden and it was the olive tree of her recently deceased father and she wants the olive tree to grow so her grandchildren can see it. You know, beautiful tradition. But it's not my tradition and it's not my backyard. So as much as it's a beautiful act of uh, human hope, beautiful acts of human hope for the future aren't going to save it and aren't going to change my minor inconvenience of not owning property. But the people who have so much less than me, you know, I think about them what good is our human hope going to do for people really living in crap? Um, first of all, my observation about people who plant a tree that they'll never see grow to maturity was a metaphor, obviously. And it is one example of the human capacity to do things from which they personally will not benefit. Oh, you know, and, I... And, and that, that's really the only point I was trying to make. No, no, no. Um, I, I mean, I understand, but I was sort of like taking that metaphor into the ground and actually planting it. You, you, you know what I mean? Because I know that people are good. Like, I, I believe that sincerely. And people will snigger at me for that and say, oh, you wake up every morning optimistic that you can change the world. And you do too. You've never given it up and you've never given up the idea that you can change internally and you have changed a lot. But what I think we need to do is to build virtue into the systems that govern our lives. And unless we do that, all the good and all the hope and all of that natural sociability we have as humans, because we are naturally social, unless we build that into the systems, the very complex social systems on which our lives depend, what good? That's a very big question. Okay, well, let's, um, let's go to a smaller question then. I'll leave that with you. And perhaps when uh, you are the member for Kuyong, oh, you're going to have to live in Canberra? I'll have to give you some notes. I grew up there. What I want to ask is I feel that it's okay to ask about your life partner because you have spoken about her publicly before. Mm. I don't want to say much other than, because it's your business, other than 
gee, she's a sort, and thank God you met her. <laughs> I, I agree with both sentiments. I mightn't express it the same way, but Kate is the most marvellous person. She's incredibly talented, and I'm blessed to have her in my life. Can we say that, and this is, you know, Kate's um, the master of her own productive work, her own creation. She is by no means the woman behind the man. But what I want to say is that, okay, so you have been a lifelong aesthete, you know, somebody who sees possibilities in art. Mm. I'm going to guess, I don't know, but I'm going to guess that it was her perspective. And I heard you saying this on my mate Will's podcast as well, that the artist's mind comes up with unrestrained thought about a productive act, about an innovation. And one of Kate's was, why doesn't everybody use their spare room um, for yeah, a refugee? Yeah, yeah, That's right. In, in response to that the Tampa, took off. She, she said, this is not what Australia does. Uh, we should welcome these people. Mm. Most houses have a spare room. We should set up spare rooms for refugees. The, the, the idea being yep. you offer free accommodation in your spare room. And the interesting thing was, I said to her, um, we, if we're going to encourage that, we have to lead by example. Yep. And so from late 2001, we've had refugees living here. And the interesting thing about that is when you, when you have refugees living in your house, you discover something truly wonderful, which is they're just like other people. Some of them are terrific. Some of them are just average. And some of them are, need a bit of improvement. Humans have the they're habit human beings, yeah. of being part of Human well, history and the species. Indeed. So just to contextualise this, this was 2001, which was a year that changed a lot of people, yeah. right? Um, you know, you get your sort of brutal populist response, which is, um, well, you know, Islam is fundamentally bad. Mm. And in Australia... And no, Matt, but, but you've got to put that in context. Yeah. The Tampa episode, the judgment of, the, of the federal court, well... The judgment of the federal court in the Tampa case was handed down at 2.15 in the afternoon, Melbourne time, on the 11th of September 2001. No. Eight hours later, the attack on America happened. All of a sudden, John Howard... No, calling, I didn't know yes, that. Yeah. Oh, you're joking. I'm not joking. And I was in the case, so I do remember the... Oh, Julian, very I didn't clearly. know that. Mm. And, of course, immediately John Howard started calling boat people illegal mm. because in his, in his dog-whistling idea... Um, uh, all boat people were Muslims, all Muslims were terrorists. You know, it didn't matter whether that's false, but yeah. he managed to disparage them. And, of course, it was then that they devised the Pacific Solution. So, yeah, I mean, you, pr you, you, you probably know if you're listening to this uh, podcast, Knackers in the Vag, 2011, um, we can probably say that this is the beginning of the rise of ethno-nationalism. No, 2001, in, not 2011. Uh, sorry, 20, yeah. 2001. It's, it's, I'm sorry. It's, it's 18 all, years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, 18, 18 years, uh, the, uh, you know, the not-so-gentle rise of, of ethno-nationalism, white supremacism, et cetera, et cetera, that we see reform like uh, a zombie from history in, in different ways. Now, I, I remember hearing this idea about, you know, let's have – so Kate's idea really caught on. And I want to ask not just about the, the woman, the artist who shares your life, but about the idea of art. So like you, 
and I think this is something we can say that we have absolutely in common, uh, we despair for the rise of ethno-nationalism. We see it as a shadow that rises up to meet the end of the world, don't we? Like we're pretty seriously opposed to it, it actually raises, that issue raises a very interesting question, which is... I want to get back to the art, though. Will okay. you let me? Okay, go back to the art. Because I regard art as more important than anything I'll ever do in my life. So I've been thinking a bit about, as people have since the atrocity that happened in Christchurch and you know, one thing and another, you know, this year I stood on St Kilda Beach and I actually saw Nazis, you know, like unambiguous Nazis. Of course, people in the press said they're, they're not proper Nazis. Yeah. Or being, being egged on by Fraser Anning, who was later egged himself. <laughs> um, that was, um, you know, actually one of the greatest um, uh, protests um, of um, fascism that I've, I've, I've ever seen. But, you know, you see, you see this rise. And you see people sort of trying to say, well, it's, uh, I'm not part of it, that's not Australian, even though um, a homicidal uh, settler madness is what established this country, even though uh, racist Sam Huntington US policy is what we've followed um, for 25 years, you know, even though there are all of these racist fascist, white supremacist acts that are in our history, we're surprised by it as white people every time. And we say, well, you know, that's not us or, you know, we're past that. So for me- Or let's hope we're better than that. Mm. Maybe, we're, maybe we're slowly improving. That's what I would hope to I see in Australia. I would say in a nation that is still a colony with no treaty that we're not any better than that yet. We're not any better than that until we realise that there is not only a, a huge psychological stain on the white settler unconscious mind that won't be repaired until we are toppled because we're not going to give the land back. You know, the unconscious, the Australian white unconscious is not going to give the land back. The treaty must be fought for, treaty must be seized, and the things that are done in Parliament to stop that, I mean, you've, you must sort of find this, at times at least, a central thought, right? Like, what on earth is this ongoing crime, right? The, um, of dispossession. One of the most... One of the cases I value most in my history is the case I did for Bruce Trevorrow in the Supreme Court of South Australia. Bruce Trevorrow was born at One Mile Camp Meningi in November 1956. Now, Meningi is just a very small town on the banks of the Coorong mm. in South Australia. One Mile Camp was a settlement of humpies made out of flattened out oil drums and spare sackcloth a mile outside Meningi, because in November 1956, when Bruce was born, it was unlawful for Aboriginal people to live closer to a place of white settlement than one mile, unless they had a permit. Mm -hmm. Now, doing Bruce's case um, brought me face to face with the reality of what land meant to Aboriginal people, 
and what damage we did by taking the land from them and by taking their children from them. It's the means of it survival. Was, it I was mean. astounding. As, uh, you're listening to Knackers in the Vag. I have caught Julian Burnside, um, candidate uh, for Kuyong, with the Greens. Uh, we've barely even talked about that. He's got to go off and shake some hands in a minute, so I ought to let him do that. Back to the idea of art and back to the idea of the rise of fascism. And- okay, let me say something about art and I'll ignore the rise of fascism for the moment. Um, there's an interesting thought experiment I came up with and it's this. Imagine a room full of people, 50 or 60 people, of reasonable intelligence and fair education, but none of them are artists. Give them a list of names from the last half dozen centuries and I guarantee you that disproportionately they will recognise the names of painters, sculptors, poets, novelists. They will not recognise the names of lawyers, accountants, economists, politicians. Um, and I think... Even though that, these were the people who probably had indeed, more of an indeed. effect on the way that they yep, live. Yeah. The I, Medici might be a, a limited example, a, a limited exception yep, to that, but yep. you get the point. So... In looking at the present and sort of trying to understand it and trying to understand why do people still, why does fascism grow, under what conditions, I was looking at this thing the other night and I knew that I was going to come to see you. So there's this um, guy called Theodore Adorno. Um, he was um, a, a Gentile, uh, close friends with uh, many of the Jews in what came to be known, uh, the intellectual circle, as the Frankfurt School. And some of the things that they have written about art and bad art in the time of Goebbels are quite extraordinary. And the rebellious promise of art and the anarchic promise of art. And there was this thing that I read and made me think of you and Kate, and it was um, at the heart of every artwork, there is an uncommitted crime. And... So it means like a, a crime of rebellion, an act of defiance. Art is the lie. So, you know, art's not real. So let's say it's a lie. But by virtue of it not being a lie, it's permitted to tell the truth and come up with a crazy but entirely insensible idea like use your spare room. And by those means, the artist's mind can tell the truth. And I, lo- I love this idea of the person that you love being your uncommitted crime and <laughs> yeah, I'm, perhaps the one. I'm not sure that I accept any of that actually and I don't think I accept that definition of art but, um, you know, if you start from that point, well, maybe the rest follows. But. Art, art is the beautiful lie that allows us to see the truth. Art is the thing that exposes crimes by not committing one. Art allows us to see the truth but that doesn't mean it's a lie. All right, you've got to go and you've got to work this campaign. Uh, could we talk again in a couple of months when you reign victorious and have uh, set capitalism to rights? Um, I don't imagine that I will set capitalism to rights. I'm not as opposed to capitalism as you are. Um, <laughs> that's a large subject which we can talk about another time. <laughs> um, thank you so much. I know you didn't have a lot of time. Oh, what am I doing groveling? You should say thank you to me and thank you to the revolutionary spirit, shouldn't you, Julian? Uh, No, really. I I would say thank you to you for raising some interesting but not necessarily accurate points. Uh, Yes, you are the holder of all reason, but then again, I think I am too. Um, We'll talk to you soon. Okay. 
You've been listening to Knackers and the Vag. <laughs>